We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. That's the very first book in your Bibles. And what we're going to do is pick up from uh, verse 4, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, when we did our first week in this series, we went through Genesis chapter 1, and we read through the first three verses of chapter 2, because that completes the seventh day of rest after God spent six days of ordering what was chaos, making order, creating space for life to flourish and exist. Uh, and then seventh day, he settles into it. He's there. He's present with it. It's, it's his creation that he, he rests in. And so that's, that was that narrative. It, I don't know why uh, chapters got broken up the way they did much later <laughs> and broke up that narrative. But uh, in verse four, we start kind of a, a different way of telling that same narrative. It's zooming in to the narrative, so to speak. It's, it's saying, hey, this happened. Uh, and all these things took place. Let me tell you about this one particular special part now, right? And so it would be like if I were to share with everyone uh, from, uh, let's see, uh, by the time I reached 13 years old, I had been stabbed four times, uh, which is a true story, by the way. By the time I, I had reached 13 years old, I had been stabbed four different times. Um, and one of them was in the head. I was on a school bus and I got stabbed in the head in the back of the head and there was blood everywhere. And so uh, let me tell you about that time, right? And I, and I wanna tell you that story. And so while I was sitting on the bus and I kept turning around to talk to uh, my brother and his friend, my brother started getting really angry that I was talking to his friend because this is my friend. My little brother doesn't get to talk to him is how he felt. And after he kept yelling at me to turn around over and over again, and I would, but then his friend would talk to me. So I turned back around. I think his friend thought it was funny to make my brother mad. So uh, the last time I finally turned around and my brother grabs his pencil and just stabs me three times in the skull, broke off in my head, blood everywhere. Uh, the bus driver stopped. It was unfortunately right around the time at our stop. And I'm just holding the back of my head and it's completely red. And we're walking off the bus and he's like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I think so. He's like, all right, <laughs> doesn't do anything. And we get off the bus and my brother's like, hey, are, are you okay? Are you okay? Like it suddenly hits him what he did. And I'm like, I, I think I'm okay. And he goes, good, don't tell dad. So he didn't care if I was okay. He cared if I was going to tell. Uh, so yes, I got stabbed with a pencil. And yes, it's true. All four times I got stabbed, it was with a pencil. So it kind of blows my street cred there. But if I were telling that story and I, and then I get to the part where I was in the third grade when that happened. And I told you by the time I reached 13, I was stabbed four times. Um, but the last one I told you about was me getting stabbed in the head, even though chronologically it wasn't the last time that that happened. See, storytelling doesn't have to be chronological all the time. And so what happens is we're going to find in chapter two, wait a second, how is this happening now? Cause it seemed like in chapter one, the, the chronology of what took place was a different order than that. And that's not the point. The point isn't to, the, the, the point is it's a good storytelling. 
the point is to go, yes, these things really happen. Now let me zoom in and tell you about this, this one particular circumstance. So I hope that makes sense. We're going to find out. I'll, I'll call it out when we get there. And the part that's like, wait, did this happen at this point or not? Um, but again, the whole point of this is setting up, uh, understanding the world that you live in, especially as Moses was writing this to the Israelites who were, just came out of slavery. They, they and their ancestors were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And he's saying, let me tell you who really is the maker of this whole world and who made you and who cares for us and how he's still at work in this world. That's the point of the story. So follow along with me. Let me pray first and because I'm actually break up our reading a little bit. We won't read straight through. So Father, we ask that you would just open up our hearts, our minds, our ears to receive your word today. God, even through um, this disembodied technology, Lord, that we, you would be present with each of us wherever we are at. You would be speaking to us through your word and that we would be transformed by it. We would remember who we are. We would become more and more like you. We would be drawn closer to you. And that we would understand even more of how you are at work in your world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 2, verse 4. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Pause right there for a second before we read verse 6. So it's introducing God, God has made everything. He's made the heavens and the earth, but there's no, there's no plants yet. There's no shrubs. There's no trees. There's, there's nothing sprouting yet from the ground. So there's a problem, right? And here's why. There's two reasons why. One, God has not yet made it rain. So there's no water to care for the plants. Uh, and two, there's no man yet to work the ground. There's no human there. That's interesting, right? Couldn't God just cause a tree to grow up on his own? What does he need the man there for? So let's continue. Verse six, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. That's a strange detail. I wonder why. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. So this picture we have is, that there's this kind of just barren land. And we, we read the word dust, but really what did we just hear right before that mist was coming up from, from below the earth to actually moisten it, to, to water it, all the ground. What do you have when you mix water and dirt? Mud, right? So now you have clay. And so now the potter can take clay and he can mold something with it. A couple of weeks ago, we gave out play to all the kids and they got to make something out of it. And that's what God's doing. He's an artist and he starts forming. And this is the first time we hear God creating something with his own hands. Everything else, he spoke it into existence, we're told. This is the first time we're told that God forms with his own hands and it's mud. Like God gets his hands dirty. And that is, right there just alone is super encouraging to me in a dirty, broken world. God's not afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid of whatever situation you're in to step into that and to get his hands dirty and to be present. 
and to create something new out of it. To see a problem and go, hey, we, I, I actually got a solution for this. Let me come alongside and form this. And so, interestingly enough, the solution for this problem that there's no, there's no vegetation sprouting up from the ground, that God sees the solution to that is make some rainfall from the sky and create a human to work the ground. And yet, if we keep reading verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So again, pause there at the end of verse 9. My question earlier was, wait a second, couldn't God, why did he need a man to work the ground so that this barren land would have life, vegetation, plants, shrubs? And yet we read, that's exactly what he does. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And then he places the man there. The Lord God, verse 9, caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food. So God could very well do this project on his own. He is not in need of humanity to come and do this. He's choosing to allow humanity to come and to partner with him in this work. So when we, when we hear, hey, there's this barren uh, dirt kind of wasteland, and it's because there's no rain falling from the sky yet, and there's no man to work the ground. But then we hear, but wait a second. Water from below is watering it, so shouldn't that be enough? And God himself can plant it, shouldn't that be enough? And yes, it could be enough. But it was not in God's plan. When we hear uh, the reason why is because there's no rain falling and there's no human to work the ground is because that was God's plan. And God chooses to make this creature in his own image filled with his own spirit, his Ruach, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, his breath of life that fills this human, welcoming him into partnership with him, made to represent him. And he says, now partner with me to do my creation project. Partner with me to help cause life to grow all throughout the earth. And that idea of us being made in the image of God and being called to partner with him is something that I think uh, we lose often. And we, we miss out on just how incredible that is. Uh, and not only that, but we, we can just easily kind of skip over it. Many of us, if we've been around the church for a long time, especially if you've been, if you've been around like kind of reformed circles of the church, you've heard the Imago Dei a lot, right? That's Latin for the image of God. And so you have this doctrine in, in your head of we are made in the image of God. But do we ever stop to actually reflect on what that means? That God, who's the creator of all things, who could easily just speak all things into existence, chooses to get his hands dirty and form a creature who he now, out of mud, he says, yeah, you're going to be my partner. You're going to partner with me in caring for all of my creation now. I have a little video I want to share from the Bible Project. So if you lived in ancient Bible times, odds are you lived under the authority of a king. 
And many of these kings claimed that they were oh. gods, and they would even call themselves the image of God. Meaning they had authority to tell people what to do, order things to be made. Yeah, they got to define good and evil. And these kings would often make statues of themselves, which in Hebrew were called selim, often translated as idol or image. But for Israel, they didn't view their kings as the God. In fact, they were never supposed to even make images of God. It's exactly right. And that was really unique for that time and culture. This is rooted, first of all, in Israel's belief that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one thing in creation. But there's another reason. People aren't to make images of God because God has already made images of himself. When did he do that? Well, let's go to page one of the Bible. And the first person we meet there is God. He's the one with authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. And he defines what is good and not good. In other words, he alone is king. But then surprisingly, as the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes humans and he calls all of them the image of God. So he gives all humans the authority to rule. Exactly. That's what he goes on to say. He tells the humans to subdue the earth and to rule it. And so this task that once belonged only to elite kings is here in the Bible the task of every human being. This was a revolutionary statement in its day because all humans are being called to rule and to participate in the human project. So what does this mean? I mean, how are we all supposed to rule? So the picture we get in Genesis is gardening. Gardening? Yes. Gardening. So they rule the earth by cultivating it, by harnessing all of the earth's raw potential and then making something more and new out of it. So growing food for each other. Yes, but that also includes growing families then, which become neighborhoods. And then they create communities where people are going to work and take care of each other and build businesses and cities that will expand to new places and so on. So ruling is really the day-to-day acts of our work and creativity. Yes, we take the world somewhere. This is humanity's divine and sacred task. I have a question. Uh, and so I'd love some feedback on this, those of you who are know how to unmute your screen. What changes about your day-to-day work? And when I say work, I mean just the thing you are tasked with in life, right? So whether you receive a paycheck or not, uh, it could be in the home, it could be just caring for your own garden in your backyard. It could be with your neighbors, could be your job where you go clock in. But what changes about your day-to-day work when you start to view it as I'm doing this because I'm in the image of God? It makes school very much more interesting and more and makes me want to learn more. Uh, because I know God created the world and we're learning about the world, how he created that. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, it even changes the way you approach school from this like, oh man, I gotta go to school again <laughs> to like, oh, this is, this is why. This is why I'm learning. I'm learning about this world that God created because I'm supposed to represent what he's like. So I should probably know about this world that he wants me to partner with him and care for. That's pretty cool, Raya. Thanks for sharing that. Who else? How, do, how does this change the way you look at, uh, and maybe you feel the same way many kids feel about school, like, oh, I gotta go to work again. <laughs> uh, so changing the shift from work being this thing you have to do to this thing you do as an image bearer of God. 
um, for me being at home with my children. I think it not only reminds me that I am an image bearer, but they're also image bearers. And so in the way that I um, teach and train them, and obviously it's going really well right now. There's lots of noise. <laughs> but yes, that's what I'm reminded of. Yeah. That's so good. Thanks, Ryan. I think we all need that reminder from time to time. Like, uh, I, there's there's times where I jokingly will shake my fist at a sign. Oh, you little sinner. <laughs> Not to them. I, I joke to other people that I would do that. Uh, but then it's like, well, no, what if I was like, oh, you little image bearer, <laughs> you know, just changing that perspective. Uh, and there's probably, you know, those are your coworkers, so to speak, Aaron. And so, but like, maybe some of you have like adult coworkers at, at a place you clock in at where you're like, you just drive you crazy. But how does that shift when you see them as being made in the image of God too? I think for me, it, it's it's a reminder that God is God is at work in all areas of life and all that we do, and He has still called me to to partner with Him um, in cultivating those those areas. Right. So mm-hmm. I think for me, it's like God is still at work in my classroom, in my students' lives, in the teachers that I work with, in my administration. Um, he is at work doing something there in all of their hearts and all of their lives. And he's called me to kind of partner with him to cultivate those relationships, to cultivate the culture of my classroom, to culture to cultivate the culture of our school in a way that reflects who he is. And so uh, it's a call, it's a continued call to partnership with him and what he's doing and not like this sense of I'm on my own and I need to create my own thing or uh, just that responsibility of like work, um, but see it more as a partnership, I think helps me kind of realize I'm, I'm not on my own and I can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. So it kind of reminded me of what Jessica was talking about too earlier and just her prayer request of how to navigate those different things. It's like God is at work. And so when we can submit to him and go to him, be like, all right, God, what are you doing here and how can I partner with you in it? I think it changes the perspective a little bit for me. I could try and be more part of like community. Try to be more part of your community, Avery. Yeah. I like that. That's a great response. Very cool. Thank you guys for sharing. In uh, Psalm 104, uh, starting in verse 10, it says, he, and he is speaking of the Lord, he causes the springs to gush into valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. Verse 14, he causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth. Wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. I I love uh, Psalm 104. And I think that section particularly is really calling us back to creation, to remember this God who made all things. And you hear about these other creatures that are involved in that who get to enjoy it. Right, you hear about 
the wild donkeys who quench their thirst and the birds of the sky who live by the springs. And you hear about how they're engaging with creation, but, and, and God created creation for them. But the first creature you hear that has a job, the only creature you hear that has a job with this creation is humanity. So who causes the grass to grow? God does. Who provides crops? God does. But what for? For man to cultivate, to to bring out the potential, to help see it flourish, producing food from the earth for all of humanity, for for the community around them. Like Avery was pointing out, like, hey, this reminds us we're, we're part of a community, right? You have a job that affects the community around you for the animals to enjoy, for like our job as humans is to partner with the work God has already done to help bring out the potential of it. One of the things that this has helped me see in just even a simple task like roasting coffee, uh, when I roast coffee for Cultivate, for the coffee shop, I, I love just to tell the story to people about how coffee got here. And the reality is nobody really knows the true story of like how coffee was first discovered. There's some myths around it. Uh, but if you just think imaginatively about how it must have gotten here, how it could have gotten here, because coffee beans are actually seeds. They're seeds of a cherry-like fruit called the cascara plant. And if you think about the imagination and intentionality that must have been involved in taking this little cherry-like fruit, stripping the fruit off of the seed, drying the seed out in just the right way, because the way you dry it out will greatly affect the flavor. And then roasting that seed over a fire, at just the right temp, getting just the right amount of airflow into it for just the right amount of time. And then grinding that up really fine and pouring water at just the right temperature over that, filtering it out. And now you have this beverage that millions, if not billions of people drink every day. The imagination, the intentionality that went into humans partnering with this thing that God created, partnering with God himself to bring out the potential in the seed is pretty amazing to me. And so what would happen if you started thinking through your work that way? How is, how is the work you do? Uh, many of you may not roast coffee, right? But how is the work you do every day, day in and day out, partnering with the potential that God put into this world and helping to bring out the flourishing of creation. So if we continue in Genesis 2, we left off on verse 9. Verse 10 says that a river went out from Eden to water the garden. And from there, it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I want to pause right there for a second. What we have right there is uh, kind of a strange little zooming in on the story. And I would love to take some time to try to figure out, like, what are we talking about with gold and bedellium and onyx? And uh, that's for another day. We don't have time to, to go quite there yet. But what I'll focus on, though, is that there's this one river, this one central river that's flowing in uh, from Eden 
to the garden and it's watering everything there. And then from that point, it breaks off into four sections. And anytime you hear something in nature, in scripture, um, that's being talked about breaking off into four sections, like the wind, for example, uh, it's, it's just kind of giving us this mental image of in all directions. So what it's saying is that this river is now spreading out to provide life to all areas. Let me see if I can share my whiteboard screen here. So we talked before that there is, uh, in Genesis 1, we saw there's these kind of waters, chaotic waters, that God separates the waters above and waters below, and he creates this safety dome here in the middle. That's not necessarily the globe, but just you know, trying to give us a picture of there's this dome of protection that God makes there. And within that, he creates uh, this other little area called land, where he separates waters from the land. And then within that, there's even this particular place uh, sectioned off over here called Eden. And within that, Eden is not the entire garden. It says in the east of Eden, he creates this garden. And in Eden, now you have these trees and particularly two trees in the center of the garden. And there's a river that's flowing from Eden into the garden and it's watering all things. And from there, it breaks off into four different rivers. Four different rivers that can now provide the opportunity for life to happen and all this other dry, barren land too. The reason I wanted to take the time to point that out and to draw that out is what that shows us is God picked a very particular place and one very particular creature that he placed in the middle of it to be for the benefit of, for the cultivation of, for the flourishing of all of this creation. This river would then pour out into all of the world and humanity was called to be fruitful and multiply, to go out and continue this creation project that God started. And so what God's done is he's created potential. He's put potential in all of his creation in the earth. And then he partners with one particular creature And he says, now I want you to go and I want you to care for it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to draw out the potential of it. So there's potential in the land. There's potential in the seeds that God put there for man to cultivate and see it sprout up. There's potential in the water and the streams that are underneath the the land. There's potential even in the human himself to produce and multiply, right? Or is there? Are we jumping ahead of the story? There's some potential here, but wait a second. Maybe the seed's been planted, but there's something missing. Do you remember we started this story with in Genesis 2-4? We started with, hey, there's this beautiful potential in the land here, but something's missing. There's no vegetation. There's no tree. There's no shrub because there wasn't a man to work it. And now we're going to find, hey, there's another issue here. Uh, we, We got this man who's supposed to represent a God who exists eternally in community, a God who desires to partner with others, but this man is alone. And so if we continue reading, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. 
remember every everything God has made so far, he said, this is good. This is good. This is so good. This is the first time. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. And so God's created these creatures. They're his creatures. God loves and cares for. But whatever the man named them, that was its name. What a, what a beautiful a partnership God has invited man into. He's given them authority. He's given him responsibility. He's given him a place to rule beside him. So verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his, that word uh, that we have there in most of our translations is ribs. The original Hebrew word, we've talked about this before, literally is side. So if you were to picture like the side of a building, it's it's the side of the man, basically kind of splitting the man into two. And so splitting him in half is the picture we should get. And close the flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And so remember, this was clay he started off as, right? And so you make something out of out of your Play-Doh, kids, and then you decide, oh, I want two of these. And you just kind of break it in half. And now you form two of them. And that's kind of what we have happening here. And so he brings uh, the woman to the man. And in verse 23, the man said, this one. So not the other ones, all the animals he saw before him. He says, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. I, I want to pause there to make a little side note that this word helper, God was trying to create a helper suitable for the man. Oftentimes in our English language and in our context in the modern day, we get this idea of like a sidekick or an assistant, right? Uh, but the word there is an azer, E-Z-E-R is the Hebrew word. And that word is used around 18 times in the Old Testament, twice for the woman here in Genesis. She's an azer to the man or helper. It's used three times talking about other countries that would come and help Israel when they were about to be destroyed and they couldn't save themselves. So another nation Lord, the Lord sent to come and protect them, to be their azer. Doesn't sound much like a sidekick or an assistant there, right? It's like, no, that's their rescue. They're going to be dead without it. The other 15 times azer is used is to talk about the Eliezer, El being God, who is my azer, my help. That God is our azer. He's our helper. And God is certainly no sidekick to man, right? He is definitely no assistant to humanity. He is our very present help in our time of need. He is our rescuer. He is our salvation. And so we don't get this image here that the woman was subordinate to the man and that she was lesser than him. Uh, we get this image that the man was not complete and whole without her, though. And again, I, I don't want to over course correct and now start to say, like, 
oh yeah, see the woman was his his savior. She was uh, now she actually has a more prominent place over the man. No, the the picture we're getting here because the man was created first, and yet he was incomplete without her. Is that they are equal, and that they are one. And so Moses makes a point as he's finishing off this chapter here to make a little aside. He's giving us this picture. Hey, let me take you back and, and paint this picture of what happened long ago. And he kind of like breaks out of the story for a second in verse 24 to say, now this is why, even to this day still, that a man will leave his mother and father and become one with his partner with one woman. That's the picture that God created of partnership at the very beginning of creation. And so what you had in this first man was the seed, this potential, uh, but it couldn't be carried out without his partner coming along. In the same way that God chose to partner with humanity, he's now saying, if this, if this human's going to represent me, they got to also partner with and be one with another too. And so I've heard of this said before, and I love this image, uh, a little equation that we get in Genesis 2 is you get unity plus diversity equals multiplication. That the man and the woman were completely diverse from each other. They were distinct people. They had different parts. They were built differently. And yet they were united as one, one flesh coming together in full partnership to carry out this task that God gave them of being fruitful and multiplying. And because they were distinct from each other and different and yet come together as one, now they could carry out that creation mandate. And it just makes me think about uh, Stephen and Jessica's prayer request earlier of like, you know, how, how do we still hold this unity? I don't want them to think that because I disagree here that there's not unity. And the beautiful thing about those of us who know this true story is we recognize, no, we need people who are different from us. We need to have these diverse conversations so that we get a fuller picture of what God's doing to fill all of his earth. And yet we know, even though that's the end of our reading for today, we know that something has drastically changed since then. Something has gone terribly wrong. That this partnership between the man and the woman is about to get broken and marred. And this partnership between man and creation of caring for it, subduing it, causing it to be fruitful and multiply, that that's about to be seen met with thorns and thistles. And then the partnership between the humans and God himself. God called them into this partnership, and yet that's about to get severed as well. Something has gone drastically wrong there. And in order to kind of help explore that, I want to finish watching that Bible Project video that we had. It's just a couple minutes more. Yeah, and this all sounds really nice. And humans have designed some pretty great things. But... Just as often we create things that cause a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice. So maybe we shouldn't actually be ruling. Yeah, so the Bible addresses this. In Genesis, what happens is that God gives humans a choice about how they're going to rule. So are they going to use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of good, or are they going to turn away and define good and evil for themselves and use their authority for self-advantage? And in the story, they choose to define good and evil on their own terms. And so this is the Bible's depiction of the human condition. So sometimes we pull off amazingly good stuff, but just as often, despite our best intentions, we act selfishly and we create evil in the world. And so we're stuck as mediocre rulers making a mess of things. 
But that's not the end of the story. So the Bible goes on and it makes this claim that all of this was resolved when God bound himself to humanity through Jesus. And he showed us what it looks like to truly rule as a human. So what does it look like? Well, Jesus ruled by serving and by seeking the best for others, by putting himself underneath them and loving not just his friends, but also his enemies. And that's not a typical way to rule. And not only that, Jesus confronted the consequences of all of the evil and the death that we have created by our messed up ways of ruling. And he takes it. I mean, he lets it kill him. And so when the New Testament writers looked back to Jesus's resurrection, they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity. Jesus is a new way to be human. Yeah, that's why they called Jesus the image of God or the new human. And not only that, they also believe that Jesus's divine life and power is now available to heal and to transform us to become our life and power. And this sounds really nice, but what does it really look like? So practically, the Apostle Paul said it looks like people being filled by Jesus's own presence and spirit, filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and integrity and gentleness and self-control. He says, this is the new humanity that God wants to create in us so that we become people in whom God's image is being restored, people who will move the human project forward. And that's actually how the story of the Bible ends. It's a renewed world where God is on his throne and his servants are all around him, but they're the ones ruling over this new world, taking it into new, uncharted territory with Jesus as their healer and their guide. So the good news that we have is that just as God put this potential in this one little area of his creation, you know, in Eden, separate from the rest, east in Eden, there's this garden separate from Eden even itself, in the middle of the garden, this tree. Uh, this this one river that flows through that then diverges into four parts. The potential he put in this one spot with the one human there originally to care for it, that then is to spread out and fill all of creation, is the same potential that we have put into one man later for salvation for all of humans, for all of creation. The, the potential for salvation for all the world, for every square inch of God's creation that he's made found in Jesus in this one new man who comes to be the full partnership with God, the full representation, the full image of God displayed through Jesus. And so he comes and he partners with his father fully and perfectly, even at cost to himself, even when it comes to the expense of him laying down his own life, doing the father's will, not his own. That's the type of partnership that we want to see in humanity with God. And Jesus is the only one who does it fully, but because he's able to do it in the power of the spirit of God, the Ruach, the breath of life from God, he then once again, he once again sends the spirit of God to fill humans too. So after Jesus rises, he sends his spirit to fill all those who would follow him, all those who would trust in him. So you get this recreation moment that at the beginning, this pile of mud formed into a shape only has life because God breathes his breath of life. And then Jesus then breathes the breath of the spirit upon those who follow him, that we can become more than just a pile of dirt, 
that we can actually be in partnership with God himself. And so I love in that video how it shared, it showed this little illustration of all the humans holding up their swords. And then suddenly they get turned into these tools, right? And that, that's an image that's taken from Isaiah chapter two, that Isaiah gets a vision of this renewed city of peace that God is bringing one day. And this is part of his vision in first four, that God will settle disputes among the nations. He will provide arbitration for many peoples and they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning knives. That nation will not take up sword against nation and they will never again train for war. God is bringing a unity back, even though he's keeping diversity. Those nations still exist. And and we get this picture in Revelation 7 that in the new creation, every tribe, tongue, and nation will be present. So he's keeping that diversity and yet he's restoring the unity so that we can once again enter into this full partnership with God and see a multiplication of his goodness throughout all of creation. And that's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we have when we're spread out in our homes on Zoom. That's the hope that we have when people are getting sick around us. That's the hope that we have when people are losing their jobs around us. That's the hope that we have when the world's freaking out about politics and whatever's going on. That we are distinct because we have a hope separate from that. And we don't have to share the fear. And we are distinct because we have a love separate from the division that's happening. And so we can bring that to them and see God's goodness multiplied throughout because of what Jesus has accomplished 